Section 8 of Great Ghost Stories by Joseph Lewis French. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 8 The Open Door, Part 3 I got home I don't quite know how, but in my mind there was no longer any indifference as to the thing, whatever it was, that haunted these ruins. My skepticism disappeared like a mist. I was as firmly determined that there was something as Roland was. I did not for a moment pretend to myself that it was possible I could be deceived. There were movements and noises which I understood all about, cracklings of small branches in the frost and little rolls of gravel on the path, such as have a very eerie sound sometimes and perplex you with wonder as to who has done it when there is no real mystery. But I assure you, all these little movements of nature don't affect you one bit when there is something. I understood them. I did not understand the sigh. That was not simple nature. There was meaning in it, feeling, the soul of a creature invisible. This is the thing that human nature trembles at, a creature invisible, yet with sensations, feelings, a power somehow of expressing itself. Bagley was in the hall as usual when I went in. He was always there in the afternoon, always with the appearance of perfect occupation, yet, so far as I know, never doing anything. The door was open, so that I hurried in without any pause, breathless. But the sight of his calm regard, as he came to help me off with my overcoat, subdued me in a moment. Anything out of the way, anything incomprehensible, faded to nothing in the presence of Bagley. You saw and wondered how he was made, the parting of his hair, the tie of his white neckcloth, the fit of his trousers, all perfect as works of art. But you could see how they were done, which makes all the difference. I flung myself upon him, so to speak, without waiting to note the extreme unlikeliness of the man to anything of the kind I meant. Bagley, I said, I want you to come out with me tonight to watch for poachers, Colonel, he said, a gleam of pleasure running all over him. No, Bagley, a great deal worse, I cried. Yes, Colonel, at what hour, sir, the man said. But then I had not told him what it was. It was ten o'clock when we set out. All was perfectly quiet indoors. My wife was with Roland, who had been quite calm, she said, and who, though no doubt the fever must run its course, had been better ever since I came. I told Bagley to put on a thick greatcoat over his evening coat, and did the same myself with strong boots, for the soil was like a sponge or worse. Talking to him, I almost forgot what we were going to do. 
It was darker even than it had been before, and Bagley kept very close to me as we went along. I had a small lantern in my hand, which gave us a partial guidance. We had come to the corner where the path turns. On one side was the bowling green, which the girls had taken possession of for their croquet ground, a wonderful enclosure surrounded by high hedges of holly, three hundred years old and more. On the other, the ruins. Both were black as night. But before we got so far, there was a little opening in which we could just discern the trees and the lighter line of the road. I thought it best to pause there and take breath. Bagley, I said, there is something about these ruins I don't understand. It is there I am going. Keep your eyes open and your wits about you. Be ready to pounce upon any stranger you see, anything, man or woman. Don't hurt, but seize anything you see. Colonel, said Bagley, with a little tremor in his breath, they do say there's things here, as is neither man nor woman. There was no time for words. Are you game to follow me, my man? That's the question, I said. Bagley fell in without a word and saluted. I knew then I had nothing to fear. We went, so far as I could guess, exactly as I had come, when I heard that sigh. The darkness, however, was so complete that all marks, as of trees or paths, disappeared. One moment we felt our feet on the gravel, another sinking noiselessly into the slippery grass, that was all. I had shut up my lantern, not wishing to scare anyone, whoever it might be. Bagley followed, it seemed to me, exactly in my footsteps as I made my way, as I supposed, towards the mass of the ruined house. We seemed to take a long time, groping along, seeking this. The squash of the wet soil under our feet was the only thing that marked our progress. After a while, I stood still to see, or rather feel, where we were. The darkness was very still, but no stiller than is usual in a winter's night. The sounds I have mentioned, the crackling of twigs, the roll of a pebble, the sound of some rustle in the dead leaves or creeping creature on the grass, were audible when you listened, all mysterious enough when your mind is disengaged, but to me cheering now as signs of the livingness of nature, even in the death of the frost. As we stood still, there came up from the trees in the glen the prolonged hoot of an owl. Bagley started with alarm, being in a state of general nervousness, and not knowing what he was afraid of. But to me, the sound was encouraging and pleasant, being so comprehensible. An owl, I said under my breath. Y yes, Colonel, said Bagley, his teeth chattering. 
we stood still about five minutes while it broke into the still brooding of the air, the sound widening out in circles, dying upon the darkness. This sound, which is not a cheerful one, made me almost gay. It was natural and relieved the tension of the mind. I moved on with new courage, my nervous excitement calming down. When all at once, quite suddenly, close to us, at our feet, there broke out a cry. I made a spring backwards in the first moment of surprise and horror, and in doing so came sharply against the same rough masonry and brambles that had struck me before. This new sound came upwards from the ground, a low, moaning, wailing voice, full of suffering and pain. The contrast between it and the hoot of the owl was indescribable, the one with a wholesome wildness and naturalness that hurt nobody, the other a sound that made one's blood curdle, full of human misery. With a great deal of fumbling, for in spite of everything I could do to keep up my courage, my hands shook, I managed to remove the slide of my lantern. The light leaped out like something living and made the place visible in a moment. We were what would have been inside the ruined building had anything remained but the gable wall which I have described. It was close to us, the vacant doorway in it, going out straight into the blackness outside. The light showed the bit of wall, the ivy glistening upon it in clouds of dark green, the bramble branches waving, and below, the open door, a door that led to nothing. It was from this the voice came which died out just as the light flashed upon this strange scene. There was a moment's silence, and then it broke forth again. The sound was so near, so penetrating, so pitiful, that in the nervous start I gave, the light fell out of my hand. As I groped for it in the dark, my hand was clutched by Bagley, who I think must have dropped upon his knees. But I was too much perturbed myself to think much of this. He clutched at me in the confusion of his terror, forgetting all his usual decorum. "'For God's sake, what is it, sir?' he gasped. "'If I yielded, there was evidently an end of both of us.' I can't tell, I said, any more than you. That's what we've got to find out. Up, man, up! I pulled him to his feet. Will you go round and examine the other side, or will you stay here with the lantern? Bagley gasped at me with a face of horror. Can't we stay together, Colonel? He said. His knees were trembling under him. I pushed him against the corner of the wall and put the light into his hands. Stand fast till I come back. Shake yourself together, man. Let nothing pass you, I said. The voice was within two or three feet of us. Of that there could be no doubt. I went myself to the other side of the wall 
keeping close to it. The light shook in Bagley's hand, but tremulous though it was, shone out through the vacant door, one oblong block of light marking all the crumbling corners and hanging masses of foliage. Was that something dark huddled in a heap by the side of it? I pushed forward across the light in the doorway and fell upon it with my hands, but it was only a juniper bush growing close against the wall. Meanwhile, the sight of my figure crossing the doorway had brought Bagley's nervous excitement to a height. He flew at me, gripping my shoulder. I've got him, Colonel, I've got him, he cried, with a voice of sudden exultation. He thought it was a man and was at once relieved. But at the moment the voice burst forth again between us at our feet, more close to us than any separate being could be. He dropped off from me and fell against the wall, his jaw dropping as if he were dying. I suppose at the same moment he saw that it was me whom he had clutched. I, for my part, had scarcely more command of myself. I snatched the light out of his hand and flashed it all about me wildly. Nothing, the juniper bush which I thought I had never seen before, the heavy growth of the glistening ivy, the brambles waving. It was close to my ears now, crying, crying, pleading as if for life. Either I heard the same words Roland had heard, or else, in my excitement, his imagination got possession of mine. The voice went on, growing into distinct articulation, but wavering about, now from one point, now from another, as if the owner of it were moving slowly back and forward. Mother! Mother! And then an outburst of wailing. As my mind steadied, getting accustomed, as one's mind gets accustomed to anything, it seemed to me as if some uneasy, miserable creature was pacing up and down before a closed door. Sometimes, but that must have been excitement, I thought I heard a sound like knocking, and then another burst. Oh, mother, mother! All this close, close to the space where I was standing with my lantern, now before me, now behind me, a creature restless, unhappy, moaning, crying before the vacant doorway, which no one could either shut or open more. Do you hear it, Bagley? Do you hear what it is saying? I cried, stepping in through the doorway. He was lying against the wall, his eyes glazed, half dead with terror. He made a motion of his lips as if to answer me, but no sounds came. Then lifted his hand with a curious imperative movement as if ordering me to be silent and listen. And how long I did so, I cannot tell. It began to have an interest an exciting hold upon me, which I could not describe. 
it seemed to call up visibly a scene anyone could understand, a something shut out, restlessly wandering to and fro. Sometimes the voice dropped, as if throwing itself down, sometimes wandered off a few paces, growing sharp and clear. Oh, mother, let me in. Oh, mother, mother, let me in. Oh, let me in. Every word was clear to me. No wonder the boy had gone wild with pity. I tried to steady my mind upon Roland, upon his conviction that I could do something. But my head swam with the excitement, even when I partially overcame the terror. At last the words died away, and there was a sound of sobs and moaning. I cried out, "'In the name of God, who are you?' with a kind of feeling in my mind that to use the name of God was profane, seeing that I did not believe in ghosts or anything supernatural. But I did it all the same, and waited, my heart giving a leap of terror, lest there should be a reply. Why this should have been, I cannot tell. But I had a feeling that if there was an answer, it would be more than I could bear. But there was no answer. The moaning went on, and then, as if it had been real, the voice rose a little higher, the words recommenced. Oh, mother, let me in! Oh, mother, let me in! With an expression that was heartbreaking to hear. As if it had been real. What do I mean by that? I suppose I got less alarmed as the thing went on. I began to recover the use of my senses. I seemed to explain it all to myself by saying that this had once happened, that it was a recollection of a real scene. Why there should have seemed something quite satisfactory and composing in this explanation, I cannot tell, but so it was. I began to listen almost as if it had been a play, forgetting Bagley, who, I almost think, had fainted, leaning against the wall. I was started out of this strange spectatorship that had fallen upon me by the sudden rush of something which made my heart jump once more, a large black figure in the doorway waving its arms. "'Come in! Come in! Come in!' It shouted out hoarsely at the top of a deep bass voice, and then poor Bagley fell down senseless across the threshold. He was less sophisticated than I. He had not been able to bear it any longer. I took him for something supernatural, as he took me, and it was some time before I awoke to the necessities of the moment. I remembered only after— that from the time I began to give my attention to the man, I heard the other voice no more. It was some time before I brought him to. It must have been a strange scene, the lantern making a luminous spot in the darkness, the man's white face lying on the black earth, I over him, doing what I could for him. 
Probably I should have been thought to be murdering him had anyone seen us. When at last I succeeded in pouring a little brandy down his throat, he sat up and looked about him wildly. "'What's up?' he said. Then, recognizing me, tried to struggle to his feet with a feint. "'Beg your pardon, Colonel.' I got him home as best I could, making him lean upon my arm. The great fellow was as weak as a child. Fortunately, he did not for some time remember what had happened. From the time Bagley fell, the voice had stopped, and all was still. End of Section 8 The Open Door, Part 3